All right, well, just when you thought Mark was over, you get one more. Not done yet. We're not done yet. So it, uh, it's been a joy to go through this gospel. Um, and I've heard a number of you say the same thing, that you have grown and learned, and um, yeah, it's been a privilege to study it with you. Um, I've, I've only preached a handful of sermons, but just as I've listened to Nate and others preach, um, the Lord has blessed this time in Mark. Um, I think most of you, maybe there's a little like sadness of like, oh man, we've got to move on here. Um, there's other books. Uh, yeah, I'm a little sad, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your word that you used human writers like Mark to record the story of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And we have the joy and treasure of reading that story, reflecting on it, applying that story to our life, letting it shape us. And we ask that you do that this morning as we remember and as we um, review and as we think of Mark one last time in this series. We thank you for this book. Thank you for your spirit which illuminates this book to us. Work in it again. In Christ's name, amen. Well, just a fair warning here um, at the front end. This will not be a traditional sermon. Normally, in our practice here, we cover one specific text of Scripture. We've gone through the entire book of Mark passage by passage and preached off of that passage. I am not going to do that. We finished Mark last week. We wrapped it up with chapter 16, verse 8. And so I get the privilege of reviewing Mark and looking back on where we've been and looking back on Mark and doing some reflection. So we started Mark 14 months ago as a church. We've spent 14 months in the Gospel of Mark with a few breaks here and there for church camp and a mini-series here and there. But most of our time over the last year and two months has been in the Gospel of Mark. It's been a rich time. Uh, August 29th, 2021, I had the privilege again of preaching the first message from Mark as we looked forward to entering this wonderful book. If you remember, I had a case of chronic laryngitis at the time, and so I squeaked out what I could, and the Lord was gracious in that process, and then we journeyed through Mark passage by passage. The first sermon that I ever preached as a seminarian in about 1998 or 1999, the first sermon I ever preached in a church was in Camas Baptist Church in Camas, Washington, and I preached from Mark chapter 14. The first class I ever taught overseas, which is what I do for a living, the first class I ever taught overseas in 2004 was with a group of Iranians and Afghans um, in Athens studying, guess what book? Mark. Mark's book is actually a big part of a dissertation that I'm writing on preaching among less literate Christian communities. And the closest I've ever come to facing church discipline was when I took out two cans a few months ago and sprayed Axe body spray as an illustration from Mark. I won't do it today. I will have mercy on you. Um, I'm still a youth pastor at heart, despite my advanced age, I guess. 
As we've studied Mark over the last year, his literary skill in putting together the story of Jesus and telling the story of Jesus has been amazing to me. And I've heard from many of you just how you're seeing things in Mark's gospel that he does. Uh, even just last week, Nate was preaching, and the, one of the last passages, Mark 15, 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. As I was sitting over there listening, my mind stuck on that description of Joseph as looking for the kingdom of God. I've never noticed that before. And I started to think through that, and I've been thinking about that all week. Thirteen times in Mark's gospel, he mentions the kingdom of God. The first time is all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus arrives on the scene and says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so as Jesus arrives in Mark 1 and as Jesus is buried in Mark chapter 15, Mark highlights a connection to the kingdom of God. And that's just mind-blowing to me. We could reflect on that for a while, I think. It's worth some pondering. And Mark does this. He weaves these themes through through his book as we've seen. Themes like the kingdom of God. Themes like seeing and hearing that he reflects on and comes back to over and over. Ideas about seeds and plants are sprinkled throughout Mark. Uh, About a month ago, a guy in our office did a little devotional on Mark's use of linen cloth throughout his book. I mean... Like, that's, that's amazing, and it's like, I'm looking at it, and like, what in the world? This is, this is crazy what Mark has done here, this little thread of, get it? Thank you. I thought long and hard about that joke, and I'm glad that a few of you appreciated that one. But Mark does this, he, he weaves these things through his book, and it's just brilliant. Um, he, he has all sorts of literary features, which we've mentioned, these sandwiches where he'll pull apart one story and stuff something in the middle of that story to highlight the contrast. At the end of so many passages, he adds this little one line at the, to cap it off, and you could study that and read through Mark and notice those additions at the end. It's fascinating to me. I love this book, and Mark is a brilliant author who uses brevity and succinctness to punch things home and move things quickly. But he includes enough little Easter eggs in his book to keep you paying attention. I love that. It's a fast-moving book, but you find these little things like, that connects to that. And he mentioned that before. Where you, just, you could play around with that for a lifetime or maybe even for all eternity. Even the cliffhanger ending at the book of Mark is, is literary genius. I, I love reading. I love books. I love novels. I love stories. And Mark is right up there now um, for me. It, it's just a, just a literary genius. He ends his book. And did you notice last week that Jesus doesn't make an appearance? <laughs> Jesus dies. He's buried. And then people say he's risen. But who doesn't show up in Mark 15, 16? Jesus doesn't make an appearance after his resurrection in Mark. That's mind-blowing. And Mark leaves that ending with his disciples terrified and scared and then closes the book. Just a great ending. It's like Inception with that top spinning and everybody just kind of argues, what happens next? What do we do with that? Did it fall? Did it stay? You know, it's a great movie. It's a great ending. You kind of end like that with Mark. What's next with this? 
what do we do with this? And we'll come back to that in just a second. Well, this might sound cheesy, but it feels like we're saying goodbye to an old friend, and I'll try not to tear up as we reflect on Mark. It will be a little like one of those tearjerker videos at weddings or graduation parties where you look back fondly on where you've been and remember God's grace. So at this point, if somebody wants to cue up uh, the Cole's Unforgettable song, which was played endlessly at those videos when I was um, in high school and college, uh, you can do that now. In Mark's gospel, if you were to go through and read Mark's gospel and highlight every time a character asks a question, you would find that there are 107 questions in Mark's gospel. There are just over 15 chapters, just a short 16th chapter in Mark, so you can do the math and realize there's a lot of questions per chapter in this book. Jesus asked all kinds of questions. I think he asked the most questions of any character from what I, my uh, little statistical analysis here. The disciples ask questions throughout the book. Religious leaders, Pharisees, high priests, they ask questions. Pilate, the Roman ruler, asks questions. Even demons ask questions in the book of Mark. Everyone is asking questions in the book of Mark. Sometimes those questions are answered, and sometimes they're left hanging quite often, as kind of that Mark and cliffhanger. There are different types of questions in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to use these questions to frame our review here. There are some questions that are kind of silly in the book of Mark. Jesus, at one time after being questioned by the religious leaders, says, have you never read what David did? And you can imagine these religious leaders who probably had memorized what was written about David saying, are you kidding me? We know this better than you, don't we? (laughs) No, um, but it's a silly question in some ways. Later on, Jesus says, salt is good, (laughs) which um, some of you may be saying that in our chili cook-off here later. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And you're like, that kind of sounds like the tree falling in the forest question. Does anybody hear it kind of thing? What, it's a complicated, almost a trick question, kind of a silly question in some ways that Jesus uses to stump his opponents. When Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him into Jerusalem, he says, you're going to be asked a question. You're going to be asked, what are you doing untying this colt? Which is kind of the most obvious question in the book of Mark, I think. What are you doing? What, I'm untying the colt. And, um, There's a lot more of that question here. There's also trick questions asked of Jesus and that Jesus returns to his opponents. He's asked at one time after a hypothetical scenario where a woman is married multiple times to different brothers because of a lot of uh, death of her uh, husbands. He's asked, whose wife shall she be? Religious leaders are trying to trick Jesus. And he, he's, he's kind of better than them and gets out of that one. He asked them at one time, how can Satan cast out Satan after being accused of using demonic power to cast out demons? Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He tricks them in, in their questioning of him and they have to shut up. Jesus wins that round. So there's silly questions, there's trick questions, there's questions that are just kind of part of the flow of the conversation. But there's also some very haunting questions in the Gospel of Mark. Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus ask his final question, I believe, when he was was on the cross and he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It's a haunting question. It's a poignant moment in the book of Mark when the father and the son have that almost conversation there. But the question goes unanswered, even though we know the answer. When Jesus was at a dinner party a few days before that, a woman comes in, anoints him. The woman receives all this backlash, and Jesus asks this haunting question, why do you trouble her after the disciples go after her? It's a great question, haunting question. After the disciples see yet another miracle, Jesus asks, have you still no faith? That one's been ringing in my ears as I've thought about Mark. Have we still no faith after we see this Jesus? So there are silly questions, there are trick questions, and there are haunting questions, and there are some critical questions in the book of Mark. So forgive me, if you will, this morning for some slight out-of-context usage of some questions here, but I think I'm still in line with the thematic emphases of Mark. Just, just forgive me for this, okay? Just bear with me on this one. I want to highlight three questions that as I went through and noted all of the questions in Mark, and I actually did go through and I found 107. I th- there's more because some of them were kind of two-part questions and you, know, you can debate that at home if you want to, how many questions are actually in Mark. But there's three questions that I think give us a framework for what we've seen Mark do. And I want to highlight those questions and kind of take you on a journey into those questions. So here's question number one in Mark. It comes in chapter 4, verse 41. Who then is this? Now, I told you last week that there might be a quiz. So here's quiz time. Who asked that question? Anybody know? Hey, there you go. One point for Chris over there. The disciples asked that question. You remember the scene, right? The storm has come up. They're on the boat. The waves are crashing over the side of the boat. The disciples, seasoned fishermen, though they are, are freaking out about the storm. And Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And so they go to him and rouse him. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They ask. They cry. And Jesus gets up speaks to the storm and the waves, peace be still, and the wind and the waves obey him. And the disciples are understandably freaked out about what just happened and ask one another, who then is this? That question right there, I think, is the dominant question throughout the entire book of Mark. It is the question that Mark is posing to his audience. It is the question that people are asking of Jesus as they observe and experience his presence in Galilee and in Judea. Who is this? Because they can see that Jesus is not just some carpenter's son from Nazareth. Carpenters don't calm storms with a simple vocal command. This isn't just a wise, authoritative teacher, though he is that. This isn't just a miraculous healer, though he is that. This also isn't just the Messiah, the promised king of Israel, though he is that. Who controls the wind? Who can forgive sins? Who can raise the dead? Things that Jesus does throughout the book of Mark. Well, who can do that? Only God can do that. And yet, Jesus does all of these things throughout Mark's book. And so as you ask this question, who then is this? I think the disciples, among many others, are thinking in the back of their heads, is God here with us? What does this mean? At the end of the book of Mark, the Roman centurion facing the cross makes his declaration. 
Truly, this was the Son of God. This would be confirmed even further three days later when Jesus' tomb is visited and astoundingly found empty because he triumphed over death in his resurrection. This was not just a good teacher. This was the Son of God. In his really remarkable little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this as the first sentence in chapter 1 of the book. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say it again, because it deserves saying again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think Tozer's correct, but I would maybe make a little shift towards a more Trinitarian perspective as we think on Mark, and I think he would forgive me for this. What comes into our minds when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. And Mark, throughout his book, spends a great deal of his words and time answering the question, who then is this? In fact, he starts with the answer. <laughs> I mean, it's like Jeopardy. Mark gives the answer at the beginning and then asks the question throughout the book. Here's the first verse of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's your answer if you want to know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and the rest of Mark shows you that, tells you that helps you see that. In chapter 8, halfway through the book, Peter confirms the first part of that, verse 1. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, which is partially correct. Jesus is indeed the promised king, but as you find out at the end of the book with the centurion's declaration, he's also God the Son. Who then is this? Jesus is the sovereign Son of God. Question number two. Chapter 10, verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? I like that question. Anybody know who asked that one? Yeah, you go. Somebody, I heard it over here first somewhere. All right, Darren, you're tied with Chris. When we get to question number three, that's going to be the, the, uh, the playoff there. Um, Jesus does a lot of miracles throughout Mark's gospel. Bread and fish are multiplied to feed thousands. He walks on water. He casts out demons, lepers, and the blind, and the deaf, and many others are healed, including Peter's mother-in-law at the beginning of the book. Remember that scene? She had a fever, which may not seem terribly serious to us, but in those days, that's a big deal. Jesus, as we see throughout Mark, can do some pretty cool stuff. I mean, it's there's some fun stories in this book, like some really fun and funny and great stories here. I love the demon stories. So when Jesus comes to Jericho near the end of his life, a blind man named Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's some recognition in the blind man's cry of Jesus' extraordinary identity. He realizes that Jesus is of the lineage of David, that king who was promised, but there's also a cry for help. From Bartimaeus. To be blind in the first century was difficult. There was no ADA compliance on the streets of Jericho. Jesus calls the blind man to him, who Mark says sprang up and came to Jesus, which I love the verb there. The blind man sprang up and came to Jesus. I'm not blind, but I have horrible vision. Uh, I have contacts on. I can see about that far clearly when I don't have my contacts or glasses on. 
When I am in that legally blind phase of not wearing my contacts or glasses, and I can't find my glasses sometimes because they fall down behind a nightstand or something like that, on those nights, I don't spring up and run because that, that would result in like a stubbed toe or a broken femur or something like that. Just It's not going to end well. Those who can't see don't spring up and run, and yet the blind man in faith springs up and goes to Jesus. But when he gets to Jesus, there's a surprising question, and Jesus asks that question. What do you want me to do for you? Which is almost a little insulting, it seems, doesn't it, on Jesus' part? I mean, I imagine Bartimaeus going like, uh, really? <laughs> Do I have to spell it out here? And you remember how the story goes. He says, let me recover my sight. The blind man replies, and his sight is restored, and Jesus is merciful to him. But think about that question a bit more. What do you want me to do for you? Asked by Jesus. My guess is if you had to sit down with Jesus, and he asked you, what do you want me to do for you? you would likely go full Santa's lap mode right there. I want a raise, I want to better behave kids, I want my car to be better, I want a bunch more vacation time, and I want an official Red Rider carbine action, 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and that thing that tells time. (laughs) Now, Jesus is merciful. So often he answers these kinds of requests. He's answered them for me, he's answered them for many of you this week even. He's merciful. But Jesus did not take on flesh in order to check everything off of your Christmas list. Remember the paralyzed man lowered through the roof? Another great, great story. Lying helpless on the floor. And what did Jesus say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. There's the paralyzed man on the floor going, yeah, but (laughs) is there more? Son, your sins are forgiven. More than mobility, the paralyzed man, blind Bartimaeus, Peter, James, John, the centurion, Mark, you and I need forgiveness, and only God can forgive sins. Thankfully, God the Son came to this earth not just to heal and teach and do cool stuff, he came to save. Mark ten forty five. for even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what do you want Jesus to do for you? Your greatest problem is your sin and estrangement from God. Jesus came to fix that problem by going to the cross, serving us by suffering in our place, serving as our ransom so that we could be forgiven. What do you want me to do for you? Question number three. Here you go. Chapter 14, verse 54. What is your decision? Ooh, ooh, any guesses? All right, I guess we end in a tie here. This was the high priest that asked this question during Jesus' trial. And this is the part where I really disobey every piece of biblical interpretation instruction I've given over the years. It's a great question, but I'm going to use it out of context. So don't try this at home. I'm a trained professional. At Jesus' trial, before the religious leaders, the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Christ, the Son of God, is what he's asking. He's essentially asking Jesus if Mark 1.1 is true. Are you, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus answers, I am. The high priest then goes ballistic and turns to the rest of the religious leaders and asks, what is your decision? What do we do with this guy? 
What do we do with this guy is what he's asking. And of course, they joined the high priest in condemning Jesus to his death, but that question is such a good one. What is your decision? I think it's the question that Mark wants his readers to ponder as they conclude the book. He's shown who Jesus is. He's shown what Jesus came to do. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. He came to give his life. What are you going to do with that? I grew up in church traditions that usually had small-scale Billy Graham-type altar calls at the end of every service. Some of you did as well. We don't really do those here. In fact, a lot of kind of theologically reformed churches with a high view of God's sovereignty, you know, we kind of struggle with those. Should we do that or not? But I'm a Christian in part because 70 years ago, my grandparents responded to Billy Graham's call and a heritage of faith began in my family. He asked... What is your decision? And Jim and Marie Montague said, we want Jesus. At the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus has risen. He's promised a reuniting with his followers. And how do they respond? They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's the end of the book of Mark. Now, I'm not going to do an altar call, but I am going to ask the question again. What is your decision with Jesus? Remember that what comes into our minds when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. You can hear the story of Jesus and like the disciples at the end of Book of Mark, cower in fear. You can hear the story of Jesus and simply be amazed at his power. You can hear the story of Jesus and dismiss it as a myth. What you can't do is hear the story of Jesus and ignore it. What is your decision? If all of this is true, Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. If this is true, if Jesus died for our sins and rose again, giving us hope that death is not the end, then we must be forever changed if we are in him. Sadly, we're forever lost if our faith is not in him. Which is why the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel are these. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The story of Jesus changes everything. So my friends, let's turn from worshiping things other than Jesus and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Normally during our sermons, we read scripture before the sermon. We're going to read scripture after the sermon in a different way. Let's listen to that good news one more time. Let's listen to the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. This is the Word of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even evil spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who was diseased pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. They came to the other side of the sea, and when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains, but wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him, night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out, and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. And Jesus went on with his disciples, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart. Get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard him blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what should I do with this man you called the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, 
he delivered him to be crucified. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And, then, and when in the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And when Pilate learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Who then is this? Jesus is the sovereign Son of God. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Well, realize that he came to forgive sins by serving as a ransom for many. So with that in mind, what is your decision? Repent and believe the good news. C.S. Lewis famously said, and I quoted this on August 29th, 2021, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we worship you as God. You are the Son of God. And in your great mercy, you entered this world in love for your creation to suffer in their place. Father, we are fearful people. We are cowardly people. We have little faith. And we beg that you increase our faith. Help us to see, trust, know, celebrate, savor, enjoy Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.